0: Well, we're going to be looking at Hebrews 10, as I've already mentioned. We've been looking at throughout the book of Hebrews how Jesus is superior to Moses. He's superior to all of the other institutions within the old covenant. And because he is superior to all of these things, he institutes a better covenant. And one of the things that's really difficult in our culture is when you say something is better than something else, you automatically assume, or maybe if you're like me, you automatically assume that that other thing that it's better than is not good. And that's not what we should think of when we think about the old covenant. It's like if I were to say that steak is better than hamburger, you would not say that hamburger is bad. Right? You would say that, well, steak is better. And maybe on some days you want to have hamburger. But that's, the, the point is this, is that something because it is better doesn't mean that the former thing is bad. And a lot of times when we look at the Bible and we look at the Old Testament, we can think, oh man, I'm glad we're not under that. And I'm glad that that thing that was bad is no longer instituted anymore. And that goes in contradistinction to what Paul has, has said throughout his letters, is that the law is good. The law is good. But what we see here in Hebrews is that the New Covenant is better. The New Covenant is better. And so the book of Hebrews indicts us to think, hey, don't don't think that all of this history should just be thrown away and then now we're New Testament believers and we don't read the Old Testament. You don't know the New Testament until you read the Old Testament, do you? Because Jesus brings to fulfillment all of those things in the Old Testament. And so the book of Hebrews does that, but then it also highlights our confusion in how the world actually functions. Specifically, how God has designed His world and set about how He works in the world. You see, God is patient with you and with me. And God is intentional in how He works. Operates in the world. And so, have you ever considered, have you ever paused and said, man, I really wish that God would have, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned to the garden, I, he, he could have fixed it right then, couldn't he have? Why in the world did God spend thousands of years waiting and being patient with us? Why not just fix it? Because God is not like you and me, that when He sees a problem, He doesn't just want to say, I'm going to fix that problem, because He wants us to see that there is a greater problem, just that there is a leaky faucet. Because God wants to teach you, and He wants to teach me, what He is like. And He wants to teach you, and He wants to teach me, what we are like. What do I mean by that? God, in Scripture... ...in thousands of years of salvation history... ...has got proof and example after proof and example... ...of how we are sinful. Of how we want to do things the way we want to do them. That we have a problem in our hearts. Because if he were to just fix things immediately... ...then you and I probably wouldn't be convinced... ...because even if you consider the thousands of years of history... You and I still make excuses, don't we? We still minimize our sin. We still try to equivocate and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person over there. And so God uses Scripture to show us what we are really like. Because just like Abraham, just like Israel, you and I are very impatient people. We want to be sanctified right now. And we don't really appreciate what God's doing in the process of growing a tree of righteousness in our lives. But why else does God wait? Why else is he patient? Because he wants to convince you and convince me of what he's really like. See, God's not fretting. He's not shaking like, oh man, I really hope this works out. God is patient and intentional, like I've already said. He wants to show us what his character is like. That he is gracious. He is long-suffering. He puts up with a lot. He wants us to be able to worship Him more as we consider our issues, our sin, and our just not getting it. And so that's why God is so patient with us. And that's why He instituted an old covenant with all of these regulations to be able to cause us to long for and look for a new covenant that would fulfill the old. So I want us to walk through chapter 10. And I want us to consider three questions. Three questions. What's the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant? If the Old Covenant is good, but the New Covenant is better, what is that relationship about? Why is the New Covenant better than the Old Covenant? And then why does it matter? Why does it matter? So what's the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant? And then... Why is the new covenant better than the old? And then why does it matter? Because I can get up here and I can walk through verse by verse. And I can fill our heads with more knowledge and understanding. And yet it doesn't have any effect in our lives. That's not what the point of preaching is. That's not what this moment is. It's not a Bible study. This is coming to understand what scripture is. And how God by his spirit wants to put it on our hearts to change our lives. So that when we leave those doors, we're different. And so... Yeah, if you're feeling it like, man, I really wouldn't be able to understand or explain how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant relate to each other. The point of this moment right now is not just to merely give us information, but it's to ask God by His Spirit to change us. So that we love Jesus more. So we understand His ways more. And then we are constantly having our vocabulary changed and our actions changed. Because if, at the end of the day, if, if, if that doesn't happen, if I stand up here and explain Hebrews 10... And then your lives aren't changed, or at least you're not challenged to change, then I failed. I'm not here to just give more information, but information that will change you. And so God gives us a few minutes, about 30, if I'm good with time. He gives us about 30 minutes together, and we have hours, hundreds of hours throughout the week. And yet this moment, God, by His Spirit, wants to take you and me and cause us to do the hard work of understanding these things and why is God so patient with us? Why has God made the Old Covenant and the New Covenant relate like this? And then why does it matter? So, what's the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant? You see, chapter 10 concludes an argument that goes all the way back to chapter 4. All the way back to chapter 4, verse 14. And I'm going to basically give a synopsis and a summary of this argument so that we don't have to go through all of the chapters. But he says this in chapter 4, verse 14. You may want to write it down to kind of see where I'm going with all these things. But he says this, "...since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses." But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so then he begins his argument in chapter 4, the middle of it, and then continues to develop that argument to show that the priesthood was always meant to be. In fact, he says... this. Melchizedek. Remember we mentioned him uh, for a couple of weeks we mentioned this king of Salem who's a king of righteousness and he's a priest this king priest mysterious figure and so he starts to walk through that from chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 10. And then he says in chapter 6 verse 19 chapter 6:19 he says we have God's oath and promise As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7. Because after after Melchizedek shows up in Genesis. There was nothing going on for the most part as it relates to this this cultic practice of, of priests. You see in chapter 7, verse 11, perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. right? So you have Melchizedek, then you have the Levites. And what, what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 7 is that Levitical priesthood, with all of its regulations, it's not able to save us. He writes this in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness. Why is it weak? For the law, the old covenant made nothing perfect or complete. But, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so the Old Covenant, what it did is it it caused you to say, I'm longing for a hope that this can't fulfill. Right? But then verse 27 of chapter 7 says, Jesus has no need like those Levitical high priests to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law, the old covenant, appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a strong son who has been made perfect forever. And so now we come to our verse, our our chapter, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The author says this, in light of this Melchizedekian priesthood and then this Levitical priesthood, we have this high priesthood because all of these other priests were weak. They were unable to forgive sin. They were unable to produce what God had created them to produce in the beginning. So chapter 10, we see this argument continues. The author writes this, But in these sacrifices, speaking about the Old Covenant sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The priesthood of the Old Covenant was a shadow of the reality. So let me ask you this, is your shadow bad? Is your shadow bad? You kind of a weird question, isn't it? Because it's neither good nor bad. It just is. Our shadow is, if you look at it on the ground, it has the contours of the reality. So it's neither good nor bad. It just is. It just is. And, and, and that's what we see here, the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us, is that the old covenant was meant to be have the contours of what salvation was to look like. There was a priesthood. There was blood that was going to be spilled so that we might have life. And so it was a shadow of of the true substance, God Himself. See, I want us to be clear that it's not as though God were just adjusting things as He was going. God didn't try to set all this up in the Old Covenant and say, oh man. He's not like a mechanic who works on your car and says, I think it might be the distributor, I think it might be the transmitter not really sure if I'm going to keep tinkering until I figure out a solution. He, see, God is more like a doctor who makes a diagnosis and has a prescription to make you better. He knows the kind of drugs and medicine that you need to make you better. And over time, he's going to say, we're going to start you out on this and then we're going to transition to this medicine. That's what God is like. He, he starts the old covenant knowing what the problem is. It's always been in here of what we've talked about. So he's not tinkering around trying to figure it out. You see, the old covenant managed the symptoms of our problem, but the new covenant cured the disease. The old covenant simply managed those things and caused you to look for the cure that was to come in the new covenant, where blood was spilt in the old covenant through bulls and goats, right? Verse 4 it's impossible, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the sacrifices in the Old Covenant pointed to the only sacrifice that would always and ever effectively and effectually forgive sins and take away our sin. So they kept, they had to do it continually, looking forward to one perfect by His blood once to forgive our sins. So the substance, the reality, was a perfect sacrifice. You see, sure, Israel was required to bring a bull or a goat, right? They were supposed to bring a bull or a goat that was unblemished, unstained by sin. But the problem wasn't with bulls or goats, was it? Who sinned against God? Was it an animal? No, the one who sinned against God was a human being. And so even from the beginning, even from the time of Abraham and Isaac, we get these shadows, these contours of what God had from the beginning, from before creation had already determined would take place. To lift up his son and to honor his son and to show that there is only one who can ever and only take away sin. And so where you see this human sacrifice that was somewhat alluded to in Abraham and Isaac, we see it totally fulfilled in the person of Jesus because a human being is who sinned against God, not not a bull or a goat. And that was God's intention always from the beginning. Secondly, then why is the New Covenant better than the Old Covenant? Why is the New Covenant better than the Old Covenant? And I don't have time, obviously, to walk through all these verses, so let me just distill it down to its main point of these verses. The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant because it fulfills the Old Covenant, because it brings to completion the Old Covenant, because it actually brings to perfection God's people. It brings to perfection God's people. Let me put it another way. The Old Covenant sacrifices pointed to a complete and lasting forgiveness of sin. A complete and lasting forgiveness of sin. Did you see here where it's indented versus uh, the second half of verse 5 all the way to verse 7? That's a quote from Psalm 40. A quote from Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8. And this is King David writing. in At the height of Israel's uh, institution David is saying you know what this is this is the the high point of of history in salvation history for Israel and here David is saying the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired in bird offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure there is no there is no point the bulls and goats were always and ever meant to be a temporary and a a pointer to the full and final reality of Jesus. You see, sacrifices, bringing a a bull or a goat, those sacrifices were meant to be an outward expression of what was already going on in the believer's heart. Okay, Just like how we understand what's going on with baptism being an outward sign of an inner reality that already has happened. And so these point to an ultimate atonement. A complete atonement, a final atonement that won't have to be offered again and again and again. And we see this in chapter 8, verse 6. The author says this, But now Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31, which is also in our passage. And and you see that in uh, verses 16 and 17. So this Jeremiah 31 passage, which we'll look at at that 930 time that I said I was going to be walking through with the whiteboard. At Jeremiah 31 is this talk about a new covenant. And so what does the author mean when he talks about fault? There being fault in the old covenant, because that's really strong language, isn't it? To say that there's a fault in the old covenant. You see, the sacrificial system was only partial. It, it, it basically pointed people's eyes to Messiah. And that's what the sacrificial system was intended to do, was to highlight the one and final great high priest, Jesus. You see, it not only pointed forward to a perfect sacrifice, like a maid of honor walking down the aisle before the bride comes, that's what, that's what the law is meant to do. It's supposed to whet your appetite to see the bride coming down the aisle. To see this new covenant when forgiveness of sins will actually happen. But it was also intended to shine a light on our hearts. That's the point of the old covenant. And you see Paul wrestling with this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I wouldn't know what sin was until the law shined a light on my heart. And then I was conscious of sin. And so the law not only points, but it also points right here to the problem that you and I have. It's like, hey, don't eat that piece of candy from Halloween. Don't eat that. And what do you want to do? You want to eat that Kit Kat bar. That's what the law does. Is It points out sin and then it highlights how sinful we are. That, man, you shouldn't do that. Man, I really want to do it now. That's that's what's going on in the Old Covenant. Is that it, it shows what God was going to do and then what we're capable of, which is mounting sin upon sin. And so we here read in our passage, look at the second half of of verse 9. He says, Jesus does away with the first covenant in order to establish the second. Literally, this reads, he kills the first in order to stand up or to make firm the second one. So how did he put to death the shadow? How did he stab the shadow? By being put to death himself as the perfect sacrifice. See, all the bleeding goats and all of the moaning oxen and bulls, they were longing for, they were crying out for the one sacrifice who would be the one who would do away with all of these sacrifices. They were... Crying out for redemption, for salvation. In verse 10, And by that will, the will of Jesus, who laid down his life willingly, not my will, but your will be done, by that will of Jesus, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Note the finality of what Jesus accomplished. Once for all. And we see this again in verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never never take away sins but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God he sat down and when he cried on the cross it is finished he meant that redemption has been accomplished there's nothing more to be done. All of that sacrificial system has been fulfilled. The cup had been filled up with his own blood. And it was overflowing into the lives of his people to wash them of their sin. And to cleanse them from their evil consciences. Right? Look at verses 13 and 14. Because he sits down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. Yes, you will struggle against sin. This is not teaching that you are to be a sinless person. There is only one sinless person. Jesus. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of God until all of his enemies are put under his feet. Who is the greatest enemy? Death. Satan. Sin And all those who eagerly wait for his return will fight against sin. So God takes us from a position where we're slaves to sin to being able to not to sin. And one day when he returns, we will not be able to sin. My friend, let's pause for a moment and just think about that. There is nothing more for you to do. There is nothing more for you to do. Because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, you, you can find the rest that he speaks about. You can find that the striving that you have is over. You see, there's a great tendency in all of our lives to try to atone for our sin. So if you if you say something harsh to someone, if you slight somebody, or if you sin against someone, there's this tendency in our lives to try to make it right, to atone for our sin. And so maybe you think that that besetting sin that you have of what you're looking at or what you're thinking about or what gravi- your heart gravitates toward that you've gone too far. Maybe you think that There's not enough that you've exhausted the limits of God's grace. The fact of the matter is is that you will exhaust the limits of your spouse's grace. You will exhaust the limits of your children's grace. You will exhaust and bring to to, to where they can't handle anymore your your parents' grace in your life. But you will never exhaust the grace of God because Jesus, who is God has once for all sanctified you, and he's making you more like himself by his spirit. There's nothing more for you to do because Jesus has accomplished it. He said it's finished, and so every time you and I try to atone for our sin, we denigrate and we make light of the fact that Jesus died and rose again to say that you are made right before God. So there's nothing left for you to do. God loves you. Have you. Maybe you need to hear that this morning, that God loves you as you are in Christ. You don't have to keep belaboring the point. In Jesus, you have been set apart. And the sooner you and I embrace the fact that we need a savior outside of ourselves that we can't trust in princes, right? We, look, we, read, we, we read about in Psalm 146 earlier. We can't trust in princes. We can't trust in anything else, including ourselves. Our obedience is paltry. Our obedience is always partial because that obedience is also meant to point to the perfect obedience of another. And so you can say, it's finished. And Satan, when you tempt me to despair and tell me of the guilt within, what do you do? You don't look inside and say, man, I really got to clean myself up. Upward, I look and see him there who made an end of my sin. And you can lay it down and you can say, because Jesus died and rose again, I don't have to prove myself anymore. I'm going to be a really cruddy parent. I'm going to be a really cruddy sibling. I'm going to be a really cruddy child. And Jesus says, you're forgiven. There is no exhausting the grace of God. Because He is the God-man, the infinite one who took on flesh to make us right with God. So that we could actually approach God boldly. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He has done. He is the one who went before us and he laid down his life because that's what our sin deserves. It's not equivocating. It's not making light of our sin. It's saying, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And so we look to him who made an end of all our sin. And we wait and long for eagerly. Like I was praying earlier, Myronatha, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly to redeem us. Are you tired? Are you weary of fighting your sin? God says there's rest right now if you will cry out to Him. So stop striving. You have a perfect advocate. You have a perfect high priest who has gone into the heavenlies and who is right now interceding for you based upon His merits, not yours. Jesus. Jesus, the crucified one, the risen one, Who looks at you and he says, I love you, and I will lay down my life for you. You are mine. No one can have you except for me. And so what ought this fact that Jesus, the one who has instituted a better covenant, what ought that to do in our lives? Because we can, like like I said earlier, we can just look at this and like, oh, that's really neat. Oh, that's cool. I see how those pieces fit together. What ought this to produce in our lives? This is not merely an academic endeavor. God, by His Spirit, wants to make you more like Jesus. So how does that happen? This is our third point, our third question. Why does this better, perfect, and permanent covenant matter? If you didn't feel that mattering to you, if if, in your heart it wasn't welling up to consider that you don't have to strive anymore, then the author gets very, very practical very practical and he says this it frees us from constantly trying to measure whether we're enough because we've come to the realization and confession that we will never do enough and because Jesus has we are enough as we are in him like a like a zit faced teenager god has stooped down and kissed you on the forehead You don't repulse him with your sin. He's not surprised. He loves you. Just as a mother loves her zip-faced teenager who nobody else thinks is good-looking. But mama does. And that's what God sees. He says, you know what? Yeah, I I, I see you. I see your your foibles. I see that you've fallen. Get up. Brush yourself off. I love you. Keep trying. Keep moving closer to me. I'm not going to cast you away. I'm not going to get tired of giving you grace. That's what I do. We're loved. We're accepted. We're free to be the person who God created us to be. No longer enslaved to sin. Look at verses 19 and 20. This is where it gets really practical. It says, Therefore, because of this high priest, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, let us draw near." To this holy and perfect and inapproachable God. Let us enter into his presence. Not cowering and not fearful that he's going to strike us down. But we go to him boldly and with full confidence and full assurance. Because like a sure guide with a machete in his hand. Jesus is cutting away the thorns and the thistles of our lives. So that we can come closer to God. He's our he's our Tour guide. He's, he's the one who's chopping through the wilderness that would try to entangle us up and keep us from pursuing God. But if we follow him, he'll clear the path. He continues to make us able, make us able to fellowship with God. And as we draw near to God, what should, what should happen in our lives? It should have three effects. Let's look at verses 21 through 24. 21 through 24. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God. So next time you sin in the next hour against your spouse or against your kids or against someone else, realize that you can draw near to God like that. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to crawl on your hands and knees. You can't atone for your sin. But you can have your conscience cleansed. And so maybe you are coming here and you feel like there's a dark cloud over your mind and over your heart. You're saying, Matt, I I really am, am exhausted from having the same struggles that I had 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. God says He can cleanse your conscience so that you can come to Him boldly. Why? Because it's based upon a high priest's blood, not yours. But then secondly, secondly, what does he say? Let us, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You see this this concept throughout Hebrews, this holding fast our confession, holding it fast because the temptation in life is to slowly lose grip. of You get bored with Christianity. You get bored with the things of God. You get bored with constantly coming to church and constantly hearing the same things over and over sometimes. And God wants to say we need to be reminded to grasp tighter our salvation, that Jesus is in fact the one that we worship without wavering. Without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. We realize that everyone in this room will fail you. Everyone in this room will fail you. Don't put your confidence in anything or anyone else than Jesus. And then thirdly, this love for God will always work itself out in how we approach other people, won't it? Who have flesh and blood. Look at verse, um, verse twenty-four, and let us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day drawing near. How many of you have heard this verse many times by a pastor saying, you need to be in church. And get this guilt trip put on you like, man, you need to be here even if you don't feel like it. Well, I'm going to tell you something a little different. I'll tell you something just a little bit different. Because what we're called to do as Christians, when we come to church, is not just to come to church. It's We're meant to stir each other up, to agitate like the sugar on the bottom of a pitcher of sweet tea. We're called to stir each other up towards love and good works. <coughs> You see, all of us have sediment in our lives, and we need each other to stir us up, to agitate, to kind of say, hey, don't forget the confidence that you have in Jesus. We need each other. You need other people. It's not just you and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. In order for you to be all that God created you to be, you need other people, whether you like it or not. In fact... Over time, you'll learn to like it and you'll learn to appreciate it that you have to look to others for your help. You see, my, my biggest struggles in my marriage, my biggest struggles in life are when I think, okay, I, I just messed up. Let me just go and try to figure it out. I'll come back in about an hour and a half and then we'll pretend like everything's okay. No, that's not, that's not helpful. That's not helpful to just try to figure it out on your own. You need to open up and let people into your life. And let me be very clear exceptionally clear here if you're simply going to church because it's the right thing to do if you're merely going to church as an obligation stop stop because first of all I want to encourage you first before you just stop I want to encourage you to reach out to somebody and say you know what I really don't feel like being here will you pray for me Come in a posture of humility. Say, I need help. Instead of saying, man, I don't want to talk to anybody here. That's not not going to help anybody, I promise. It's not going to help you, and it's not going to help those who you give a cold shoulder to. And so you pray together. You seek help from others. There's a lot of need in this room, whether you know it or not. And if you have eyes to see it, you'll want to come alongside people who need help. We're all needy. Not just in theory, but in reality. There's a lot of hurt in this room. So look outside of yourself and look to other people, how you can stir them up towards love and good works. Instead of saying, what am I going to get from this service today? Say, what can I do in this service to stir someone else up towards love and good works? And then also to reciprocally have someone else stir me up. Instead of them, man, I can't believe they tried to encourage me. I can't believe they wanted to try to pray for me. Who do they think they are? Don't they know I got it together? Well, that's not church, is it? If you just come and are coming to sit and just uh, have an event. You see, too many times people just go to church like it's an event, and then they go home. That's not what we see biblically, though, is it? I remember there was a time when I didn't like to go to church as a Christian. And at root, it's because I didn't know anybody in the congregation. And so what I'm trying to get us to do as a church is to know one another outside of this hour and a half together. Because you won't want to come to church if you don't know anybody if you don't know the struggles that each other are having. And so we can talk a lot about community, but if we're not actually calling each other or texting each other or emailing each other or actually asking each other questions, then we won't want to come to church very long. Sure, I was in a community group, but I still didn't want to come to church because I was going to it half-heartedly, looking out for myself instead of looking out to other people, how I might serve them. Why would you want to go to a church where you didn't know people? It's not the kind of church that we want to have. So so text someone to invite them to the gun range or to go bowling. Get in each other's lives. Love one another in reality. Not just in theory. I promise that you'll find church more enjoyable. And then don't come out of obligation. Don't come out of obligation. Jesus is going to build his church. Jesus is going to build his church and it's not going to be because people just gut it out and come to church out of obligation. You see, you can fall into hypocrisy if you do that. If you pretend like everything's all right, if you paint a smile on your face, and if you pretend like you have it together. You see, you can also repulse people too by a bad attitude, by just coming out of obligation. You're like, Man, I don't want to be here. Well, I've been in churches like that, and that's not what I'm longing for in our church, is that I want us to when we are here, that we are stirring each other out towards love and good works. Jesus is going to build his church, and we get to be a part of that building process if we set about the work of loving one another in reality. So don't come because you're supposed to. I'll write more in my weekly email about this. I've been thinking a lot about this because I know it's kind of maybe somewhat shocking to hear a pastor say, hey, don't come to church because this is the problem. Is that some of us are like, yes, I got a hall pass. I don't have to go to church. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't come because you are compelled by some kind of outside emotion. Pray and say, God, I don't really want to go to church. Why not? And delve down into that just a little bit more. Because maybe you and I have a wrong-headed view of what church is. Because the, the question is, if you find that you don't need people... If you find that you don't need other people in your life, then you may not really understand what the Bible's teaching us about the Christian life in total. You see, maybe you're fine with just you and Jesus walking through the forest, having, having a cup of tea together, being able to have your spirituality some, somewhere else, and being able to be really raw and honest about your life. But look at the warnings of 26 to 31, I don't have time. To go through this but if we go on sinning deliberately that's what the point is if, if I say hey don't come to church and you, inside your heart is going yeah I don't have to come I'm not coming next week see you later Matt said I didn't have to come if that's what's going on be careful be careful because that means that you are willfully sinning against the very means that God has instituted to bring you to himself You see, these verses, 26 through 31, they warn us that by forsaking being together, we're forsaking God. We're forsaking the means that God has instituted for us to be more like Jesus. So church is not like an accessory or being with the community of believers is not an accessory to your Christian life. It's the very means that God uses to bring you to himself. Stirring each other up towards love and good works. And if you can't love God's people with the zits on their faces, if you can't love God's people, then you may not love God. You may not love God. You see, our understanding of God oftentimes is too small. We relegate Him to just a transactional relationship, like, I'm going to go to church, listen, learn, and then I'm going to go away. And we treat our relationships transactionally too. But God is so much bigger. And so much more present than that, isn't he? He's not here in this room only. He's not out there somewhere, but he's here. So that when you have a conversation with somebody, you could be having a conversation with God, if you'll have ears to hear, eyes to see. That every moment is ripe with God saying, I want to draw you closer to myself, even in those difficult conversations. And that in sitting around a fire pit talking to other brothers and sisters about your life, you're communing with God if you'll have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart ready to receive from God. And by pressing into each other's lives, we're pressing in to God. We're pressing in to know Him and love Him more. So that's my prayer for our church that we would not just go to church but that we would be church. We would be the assembly. We would be the people that God has called us to be together in reality, not just in theory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this warning, but also the wonderful fact that we have a high priest who has gone to the heavenly places, which is his flesh, and he, he, by laying down his life, has torn that curtain in two, He's broken Himself on our behalf. We pray that we would fall more in love with this High Priest. And that as a result of knowing Him and loving Him, our lives would be changed. And they would be changed together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.